Hello and a very warm welcome to a new episode of Women Build, brought to you by World Architecture News from Alison and Nav. today's episode, we speak to Natasha Bonugli, Global Principal of Design at Unispace, and Tanya Adir, Founder and CEO of OnCommon. We look at what's being done to protect people from coronavirus in global workplace interiors, how advances in technology will make for safer work environments, the challenges faced when upgrading an older building to well platinum certification, and finally how lemons can help with concentration. Natasha trained as an architect in the US and the UK and is now based in London. During her 18-year career, she's worked on projects of all scales, including Deliveroo's London headquarters and Biogen's headquarters in Switzerland. Following a career in property development, Tanya moved into the world of interiors and uses biophilia, sound, sense, lighting and ergonomics in her designs for luxury co-working spaces in London. Thanks for your time today, Tanya. To start off with, could you tell us what Uncommon is? Uncommon is a flexible workspace very much focused on idea of design, technology and well-being being kind of a three key pillars of our offering. Our design is very much focused around activity-based working, biophilia, ensuring that sort of all the specific areas of our buildings are designed with that task at hand in mind and trying to make our customers as productive and as efficient as possible. Natasha, welcome to the pod. Can you tell us a bit more about where you work and what you focus on? I'm the Global Principal of Design at Unispace and my remit covers both EMEA and the US, so all the design teams across both regions. Unispace is a global firm and we specialize in workplace strategy, design, and we also have delivery under one umbrella. So it's a really unique methodology that combines both design and construction. Okay. And with your experience around the globe, what would you say are the main differences with interior design now that you would see in different countries? There are are two aspects that really impact or reflect the differences. And one, the biggest one I would say is cultural differences. And the second would be kind of building regulations when you get into local markets. The cultural impacts are really expressive depending on the hierarchy. That's the first aspect of culture that really has an influence on workplace design. For example, in Sweden, they're more egalitarian. So every employee gets their own dedicated space or room. Here in, in England, you know, it's really about a kind of higher ranks and those get those kind of privilege to those types of spaces. The Netherlands or Germany, you can see hierarchy in the size of the rooms rather and the amount of, of people in those rooms. And then the second aspect of culture really is around individualism, you know, the amount of personal space and privacy. The US, the UK, the Netherlands, and I would say Australia probably lead the pack in terms of adopting new principles. You can see they're a little bit more progressive in thinking, whereas, you know, some of the other countries, because of the cultural differences, they're a little bit more conservative. The other thing I would say is there's, because of the internet and because of Instagram and this kind of constant inspiration out there, there's definitely more of a convergence in thinking as firms and, and regions are learning from one another. So you're starting to see a lot more blend in the styles that are coming across in the interior world. Um, and that's with products and materials 
uh, furniture, et cetera. But, you know, the second one would be building regulations. We obviously have constraints, especially in Europe, country to country, in terms of the codes and spacing, access to fresh air, natural light, and compartmentalization as well. So those are definitely constraints on what we can do with space. And how much has the pandemic affected interior office design? What are you now being asked to do that you weren't possibly before? There's definitely a drive to understand what the purpose of the office is moving forward. And, you know, organizations are really shifting the focus on their people. So it's really about creating the office or the workplace as a destination, a place where people want to come in. They don't have to come in. So we're really focusing on things like community building, um, areas for problem solving, and innovation areas. So if people are going to be working both remotely and in the office, it's about recalibrating space, you know, according to the needs that people need when they're in the office. There's a lot more focus on mentoring and training as well, both virtual and face-to-face. So we're starting to design a lot more spaces around those types of activities. And the one thing I think will be constant and that will stick in the future is that organizations will provide more flexibility and choice for their employees. This is, you know, success won't come from sitting in rows of desks, but from agile teams that can work together wherever it makes most sense and wherever their clients need them. So it's about providing the right settings and spaces for their employees to choose how and where they do their work and the tools and technology to enable them to thrive. And would you say that's the same approach in in small companies and large companies? Or are the larger companies taking more of a sort of an active stance on this? It's an interesting question because, you know, we're working with one-off clients, but we're also working at global scale. I think there's a bigger shift for a lot of global organizations realizing that they have to do something. So we're working, you know, with dozens of global organizations to to really recalibrate and focus on what the purpose of the office is. And that then can be scaled up or down. So they're looking at flexible frameworks that can be applied. And obviously there's an understanding of regional nuances and differences, especially in the cultural aspects that come into play. So, you know, providing a flexible framework, regardless of scale of of an organization, if it's a one-off project or a global scale, is really important moving forward. And do you think this is the biggest change that you have seen in office design in your 18-year career so far? Yes, certainly in my career, yes. I think, you know, they say in the history of office design, it's every kind of five to 10 years is a big shift. But I would say this has kind of ignited the amount of change that would have taken years to implement in terms of change management and processes and systems and tools. Hmm. This is quite a handbrake turn, isn't it, for the interior designer, really? Tanya, just to bring you into the conversation now, how have co-working spaces been changed in the last year to become a bit more COVID-proof? There was a lot of, I'd say, initial kind of firefighting where everyone was trying to figure out what's what's needed, what's supposed to be happening, what's not supposed to be happening. But I think the key elements are probably here to stay for longer term in terms of impacting the future of design. 
And starting with that, sort of what has been done is first is is very much focusing on technology. Ourselves at Uncommon, we very quickly uh, went around and installed the thermal cameras to be able to identify the body temperature of anyone coming into the space straight away. And while it's, I think we're all by now aware that, you know, temperature is not always equals uh, someone is, is ill and vice versa. What it does, it's, it's not just protecting sort of wider occupiers, but it also creates that element of sort of feeling secure and almost the marketing element of it where people feel like, well, actually, I am probably more protected and it's, it's safe to come into workplace. The circulation, obviously, of, of spaces and, and how people navigate throughout that space is something that has been addressed. How, you know, much of a kind of furniture and how we position it that had to be rearranged, you know, various different procedures of starting from visible cleaning and, and maintenance, spraying spaces with a, with a sanitizing sprays to make sure that the solution sort of is a, is a kind of a, a hospital grade sanitizing system that eats into all the surfaces to make sure that, you know, there are no contaminants that left that can perhaps later infect anyone. But I think it is all to some extent a more of a sort of a, a firefighting as opposed to something that is going to hopefully stay here for a long time as we're seeing ourselves out of COVID. I think the, the truth is that people becoming a lot more aware about how often do they wash their hands? How often do they gel their hands? I think there is a big threat of us all putting our hands gels on and a couple of years times perhaps finding some different diseases came out of it. So I think, you know, elements like touchless buttons, elevators with with sort of uh, just, just kind of a wave motions, same with water taps, filtration. So anything that is a sensor, a motion type of LED, whether it's door opening systems, whatever that is, that makes your experience as touchless as possible will be very much here to stay. I think there is always an element of CapEx and the, and the question mark of whether an occupier is willing to pay for it because it is it is not cheap. But I think as more on scale and on mass, it's sort of adapted, the cheaper um, that will become. So I think that's something that for us there to stay and something to implement in our next projects as well. And that leads very clearly onto my next question, which is in fact costs involved. Perhaps I could go to you, Natasha, on this one. How much more expensive is it to acknowledge the changes that COVID has brought to the interior office areas? Yeah, I would say the largest area we're seeing more investment is in technology. As Tanya said, um, I would say that's very true. You know, be moving forward, we're, we're going to have to continue to connect people both virtually and face-to-face And a lot of organizations might not have had the right infrastructure to support that. So, you know, also with a heightened level of hospitality, I think there's going to be a focus on the level of support when you're in and out of the office, whether that be concierge services, support hubs. So obviously that then in turn, there's a cost to have the right personnel on board to support the workforce coming back in. And also, I think there's going to be a focus on better space. So there might be more budget allocated towards, you know, creating better environments for people when they come back in. If if the office has to be a destination, then I think that there will be greater uh, focus on better spaces and better environments within the actual um, office itself. So there's definitely more investment it's not necessarily about creating more space. It's about recalibrating that space. And, and often what we're finding is 
that there might be a release of space, but actually they're investing back into the space they have and making that better space for the people moving forward. Okay. You've both mentioned the importance of technology here in managing safe environments. Is there any technology that you think is going to come within the next five years that people are asking for now and looking at? I think there's a lot of technology that's out there. We're not talking about, you know, groundbreaking new tech. I think it's just making sure that you know, people are connected and a lot of organizations are adopting applications so that their people can be connected whilst they're in and out of the office and at a global scale as well. And that can be down to that user interface or, or user experience within spaces, being able to book rooms, book a space or a desk, be able to connect with people, see where people are in the various spaces through a building, whether that be one floor or a campus. I think that's really important, especially if there's going to be more flexibility. Um, having to help with the scheduling of which teams and what you know, which people are coming in on what days. I think that's also a lot more focus on you know planning will be important moving forward. So technology will help enable organizations to bring all of these pieces together. Yeah, in, in more of a sort of an overarching form. Yes. And sorry, one other point. I think the idea of being virtually connected and being able to collaborate virtually, I think that's probably where we'll see a shift as well as more tools to be able to, um, you know, collaborate face to face, but also have colleagues who aren't necessarily in the office still feel as though they're part of that session or, you know, that collaboration, um, that moment itself. Yeah, making it sort of a comfortable communication mix, really, that, that works fluently. Tanya, I actually wanted to ask about one project in particular. You had the Uncommon Hoven project, which is expected to become the first World Platinum certified co-working office in the UK. What would you say has been the most challenging element of the well certification to introduce into your workspaces? I'd say that the most challenging part has been to start from sort of the type of a building is a, is an existing 1950s concrete building of 140,000 square feet across eight stories and it basically occupies a whole sort of street if you'd like from one side to another so it's a quite a, a large building which is combined out of three and what we're really trying to create is a new brand spanking well platinum certified building introduced into that kind of existing core and shell what it does entail is quite a lot of modifications that had to go into the core and shell of the existing building so one example and, and, and the key requirement of well uh, platinum certification is air and the quality of air. And that's very much a, a part which I think will be a great focus for occupiers and uh, our members as well as traditional occupiers going forward is the quality of air. Because currently the quality of air, uh, apparently in any office, is 10 times worse than air outside of that office on the street. And that's mostly done of the lack of regulation that specifically in the UK um, has been in place for quite some time now where there are no, uh, there's no legislation requiring you to filter air to a certain quality where, for example, in, in Europe, in Germany or France, it's been very much a requirement for the last 10, 15 years. And I think that's actually about to change. 
So coming back to that question, really, for us, we had to completely remodify core and shell of the buildings throughout uh, to allow for quite substantial risers to go through that building. So that's very much uh, allowing white or sort of wide air filtration systems to go throughout the entire floors all the way to the roof and then pump them all through into each and every single office within that building. So I think from cost point of view, that's been a very expensive and very time-consuming exercise to ensure that we can A, filter air to that quality and B, also retain the sort of the, the height of the ceiling because if you if you do all that m and work sort of um, kind of above your head, obviously have to penetrate into the beams, but it's quite a heavy work from sort of demolition and, and a reconfiguration point of view. But I'd say from, you know, from well specification overall, uh, while air is probably one of the most stringent metrics and probably one of the most costliest from everything else, I think because it's such an overarching city and it touches on so many points from something like air down to, you know, what kind of paint you use on the walls to how far apart is every single water point in the, in the building. So no occupier is further than, I think it's 18 meters away from a closest drinking point to how many cookbooks are there in the communal spaces and what sort of wellness activities are taking place within the space. So it's a very much a 360 degree sort of circle of various different aspects of what a healthy building of the future looks like. And it's not just a physical, but it's also an emotional element of it. So I'd say taking all that into account is one. And, um, you know, as, as with anything else, genuinely being able to put a price on it or a cost on it to then justify that to the investors or to, you know, to building owners that that's money worth spending uh, while perhaps the end client may not necessarily willing to pay for it or basically seeing that return on investment. I think it's something that is is, is been very much a, a challenging part. But I'm hopeful that with COVID, and I'm certain that with COVID, the demand and the sort of the attention will very much change into that uh, healthy building mindset almost for the for the occupiers. And it is very much the quality of offering that will prevail over the quantity. And I do think those landlords or property owners that do not have that mindset of the quality of accommodation will inevitably lose in this in this game. But those that have invested will see a massive gain. A lot of some of the other European countries, we have to have access to fresh air and operable windows. Whereas, you know, here in the UK, a lot of the buildings don't allow for that from a kind of technical point of view. So there is greater focus on the right ventilation systems as well as lighting control as well. In terms of the sustainability factors of base buildings, developers are looking, you know, they have a greater focus on providing the right infrastructure to support buildings and their occupiers moving forward. So I think there's, it, it's not an add-on, it's definitely very much a focus that's at the forefront of what we're doing right now uh, across the board from, you know, the, the architecture down to the fit-outs uh, and down to those that, that are actually letting the spaces and providing environments for their own staff. Which country do you think is, is ahead on this? I'm not playing a catch-up game. You know, Switzerland and Germany have strong uh, regulations and they very much focus on the well-being of their people. I would say that, you know, it is a, a regulation to provide natural light. The sustainability 
aspects are really important. Um, they're kind of written into the, the rules of, of fit out guides. So, you know, they're probably in Europe, they're probably ahead. In Australia, there's a strong focus on well-being for people and sustainability within buildings. The U.S., I think it's getting there. It's probably a little bit behind, uh, but it also depends on the organization, how important it is for them and, and their kind of values and the, the business's uh, drivers moving forward. Tanya, how do the various elements of sound, scent, lighting, ergonomics and biophilia all work together in your designs? It's inevitably always a part of your everyday experience. It's just not everyone always thinks about it. It's It kind of acts subconsciously on, on anyone's sort of senses. Whether you're at home, whether you're in the office, you know, there's always a sound, there's always a smell, there's always a light. There is always a, you know, a surrounding. And I think one thing that one may really appreciate is feeling whether they're productive or they're not productive or feeling like they're you know, energized or they're not or anxious or they can't focus. And perhaps in many instances, actually, it's just a matter of fine tuning those different elements that do make that specific individual doing that specific task that much more efficient or effective and that trying to align all those different senses to help them be great. Obviously, there is always that emotional side inside you, which no one can change externally. But at the same time, being in the right environment, the hope is that it's very much affecting you from the outside, inside, if that makes sense. And for us trying to put all these various different elements working together, hopefully make our occupiers, in fact, we do know that they make our occupiers feel more energized, feel more creative when they need to, feel more focused when, again, they need to. And there are so many different proofs that demonstrate how biophilia, for example, have a presence of green plants around you or natural wooden flooring, for example, increases cognitive processes and, and, and scores in, in children and how it all affects and you know healing processes and, and bringing it all together in day-to-day -day life is so, so important. Your heart rate, how it responds to the type of music that is playing, your mood and your ability to concentrate is, is very much affected by type of music and the, whether there is uh, lyrics in that music or not, or what sort of scent is prevalent. And your impressions and, and sort of impressions of space or the light can also change depending on how the space smells. I'm intrigued about the scent. What, what is the most popular scent that you use? So there are there are a couple of trade secrets, if, if you like, that we deploy. Depending, again, it's what Natasha was describing in, in terms of different types of activity zones. We call it activity-based working in terms of uh, if it's a creative area where people are very much for putting their ideas and collaborating and talking and sort of, you know, having that informal setting. The smells of vanilla or cinnamon, for example, quite sweet, quite warm, uh, help with that. And also it actually provokes your appetite. So if, for example, you're nearby kind of a coffee area or F&B offering, it, it is recommended to to infuse some of that scent to help people with, with that creativity and also a bit of hunger that apparently helps with, you know, with the process. Then uh, smells of citrus, so things like lemons, Verbena, uh, as an example, that helps with concentration. So actually focus zones, quieter zones, where people need to put their head down and perhaps work on an Excel spreadsheet or a detailed plan, whatever else that might be, uh, help with that. And then various different parts that help with, with sort of calming your mind and focusing and kind of uh, decompressing, as we probably all know, 
smells like of lavender, ylang ylang. So we use blend of those to produce senses throughout the spaces, depending on that activity in mind. It's pretty amazing, you know, how consistently one thing that people do not say, wow, it smells amazing here. And there is even a, um, a research which showed one group of people being taken through the space where they smelled really nicely throughout that space. And then a different group of people taken for exactly the same space without that smell. And smell was very much inconsistent. First group found the space to be very bright, very light, very clean, very tidy and organized, where the second group found it actually quite disorganized and quite sort of grabby and dirty, which is just the, 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 the true difference between the two was just the, the smell. And that shows how it affects beyond our sort of uh, perceptions, but actually leaves us a certain impression. So we deploy some of them and then we, we experiment with some others, but we're trying to make sure they're not they're not offensive in any way. So one final question, really, um, possibly to, to Natasha first. What advice would you give young interior designers um, who want to grow their career opportunities? I have a, a, a few points that I usually say to some of the younger designers, but you know, remembering that everyone fails at some point. I think failure only becomes mistakes if you let them stop you while you're progressing your career. Also, if one door closes, find another one to open, you know, move on and take your talent and potential somewhere where they'll appreciate the value. Also, this is something I've been struggling with and still struggling in my career is finding a a better work-life balance. And perhaps, you know, COVID has actually helped everyone rethink and and take a moment to reset because it's really important to to do that often earlier in our careers we tend to to work those crazy hours especially in the world of, of architecture and interiors you do risk the run of burning out so just really focusing on taking that time to to reset and do it often and then finally i would say you know find a mentor someone you can who can help you navigate those early stages of your career that can be really invaluable and help you move ahead um, and progress things in the right direction. And Tanya, the same question to you. For any design, I think working with a client or any project, what is genuinely the aim and the goal that they're trying to achieve and how is that they're trying to make someone feel in that space, you know, imagining themselves there and almost sort of proving it by trialing it out. I think a lot of designs that I've come across as, you know, sounds great on paper, but actually when it's delivered, it's cold, it's impersonable, it's not it's not something that really sticks with you and being able to really dig down into what is that people are going to be doing within that space? What is that drives them? What is that they after? What is, you know, they're going to be thinking when they sit in this space? What is they going to see? So making sure really these environments are safe, but also engender creativity and an opportunity for people to grow within them at work. So thank you both very, very much indeed for your time. I found that really interesting and I hope you did too. We welcome your feedback on the pod. So please aim all your comments at wan-editorial at haymarket.com. These podcasts are available on Spotify, iTunes and Google Podcasts. So register, download and join us as we look into the world of architecture from a female perspective, wherever you are. (laughs) 